Okay, we are in uh, Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, reading from verse 27. And Jesus went from there, and two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout all the land. Two men crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us. Jesus says, Do you believe that I can do this? And they said, Yes. And Jesus touched their eyes and healed them. How many blind do you think there were in Israel? How many blind do you think just let Jesus walk on by without crying out? You know, as I think about about life and unbelievers in my own life before I knew Christ, it's really interesting to think about what it was like. Because I came to the Lord at 18... And the joy of having Him in my life, the change that occurred in being able to wake up each morning and to pray to Him, I I couldn't imagine now what it would be like to go back and to not have Him to pray to, to to wake up in the morning and have no realization that God was for me. The question is, will we cry out to Him? Will we cry out? I think intellectually we believe that He is able to do many things in our life. That we believe that if God can indeed create the heavens and the earth, He could certainly do something to change certain circumstances. Yet we probably never cry out very much. And these two men, unlike many of the blind, were crying out to God, saying, Jesus Have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us. If you're an unbeliever and you don't know God, I ask you to cry out to Him. Cry out and ask of Him and see Him answer. Cry out to Him and say, Lord, do something in my life. Change my heart. Change my life. He will come and He will bring a difference. I am telling you from my own experience and the experience of many others that I have seen. When a person comes to Christ, there is a change that occurs. The change that occurred in my life was so profound, people saw it even before I told them. They said, there's something different about you. You're different. Something happened in my heart and in my life at that time. Something will happen if you will say... Have mercy on me, son of David. Have mercy on me, Jesus. He will come into your life and begin to change things for you. Things begin to change. Anger begins to slip away to, to a great extent. Uh, uh, the 
sorrow and the, the feeling that, that, you know, I'm really all alone in many of these situations begins to slip away because you sense Jesus is there. And you maintain this by reading the Scriptures. But the first step is to cry out and to ask of Him. Ask of Him. And He will work in your life. There were so many blind, but so few cried out for help. And sometimes you wonder, you know, why if you're blind and the Son of God comes walking by, wouldn't, why wouldn't you cry out? I mean, what is it with human beings that we will not cry out to God for help? So many blind, just let Him walk on by. So many lame, just let Him pass by without crying out for help. <clears throat> Maybe they'd look a little bit odd, they thought. Maybe they thought I'd, I'd, I'd look a little bit strange. But all my blind friends couldn't see me anyway. Because they're blind, Right? So you wonder, why wouldn't, why wouldn't they cry out? Why wouldn't they cry out? All the lame that just let Jesus walk by. Why wouldn't they cry out? And so often the excuses that we have in our own hearts are really strange as to why we wouldn't cry out to God for help. Here He is walking right on past us. Jesus said, today, behold, today is the day of salvation. When you're given this opportunity of salvation, don't let it slip by. And as a believer, don't keep kicking against life without crying out to God. Learn to pick up the Word of God and learn how to ask of Him. Learn how to say, have mercy on us, Son of David. Have mercy on me, Jesus. Have mercy on me. And He will have mercy. If you ask of Him, He will have mercy. But Jesus didn't go around saying, everybody who's blind, come on. Come on, everybody who's blind. All the lame, come on, I'm having a healing service. No, when they came, He healed them. At one time in His ministry, He healed the masses based on their personal need. At a second portion of His ministry, the latter half of His ministry, He only healed individuals based on faith. And this is one of those healings based on faith. And we will see in a couple of chapters as to why that change occurred. But you see that Jesus healed specific people who cried out to Him. Jesus will work in your life, in our lives, to the extent that we'll cry out to Him. Most believers never see Jesus working in their lives because they never ask of Him. Maybe they think they'll look strange. Maybe they don't want to you know, look any different, and they'll sit there week after week, year after year, coming to church without ever crying out personally to God. And it takes some real destruction, like their marriage is falling apart, or one of their children is deeply sick, before they'll begin to cry out. And God said, I had so much more for you in other times in your life too. You're facing career, career decisions. You cry out to God and He will work in your life. He really cares about this sort of thing. All right, let's move on. Matthew chapter 9, verse 32. And they were going out. A mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds were amazed. And we're saying, nothing like this has ever happened in Israel. 
But the Pharisees were saying, He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Remember that I told you that Matthew is very much like a, like, like a uh, news reporter who only has three minutes to give you the world? It'll give us three minutes and we'll give you the world. That sort of thing. Matthew is very quick with these healings. You can look in other gospel accounts and see some of these much more drawn out, but there were three messianic miracles. Three miracles that the rabbis taught that only Messiah would be able to do. And it's in their writings to this day. One is that a leper would be healed. Since the completion of the law, never had a leper been healed, a Jewish leper been healed. Miriam was healed, but that was before the completion of the law. Once Moses completed the law, there were three chapters written about what to do with a leper in their healing and how to examine them. Never had there been an instance. Naaman was a Syrian. Naaman was not, not a Jew. And so they said only the Messiah would be able to heal a leper. When Jesus healed the leper, what did he do? He sent them back. He said, now go show yourself to the priests. That got the inquiry going. The second, the, the, the second Messianic miracle was a man born blind. Only the Messiah would be able to heal a man born blind. And that's why there was this, this inquisition that occurred after Jesus healed the man who was born blind. And we'll take a look at that in a future study. But this was the third Messianic miracle, and that was being able to cast out a demon from a man who was a mute. And that's because the Jews always taught that you identified the name of the demon by asking, what is your name? And then once you got their name, you commanded them out. Jesus indeed testified that Jews practiced exorcism in that day. Because Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 12, If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons then cast them out? In other words, confessing that their sons practice exorcism. Remember the seven sons of Sceva, the priests sons, one of the leading priest's sons, seven of his sons were casting out demons and then tried to do it in the name of Paul and in the name of Jesus. The demons jumped out of the demon-possessed man and beat, beat the seven sons up, sent them running away naked. So Jesus well knew that they practiced exorcism, but they thought only the Messiah would be able to cast out a demon from a man who was mute. And this is why in this portion, it says that as soon as this happened, the people said nothing like this has ever happened in Israel because they knew only the Messiah would be able to do this. This was one of the three Messianic miracles. <clears throat> and that's when the Pharisees, who had taught them that only the Messiah would be able to do this, then turn and say, yeah, well, he cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. And they explain this away. And then all of Matthew chapter 12 deals with this issue as to the outcome of this issue. Remember, the, the three Gospels, other than Luke, Luke, Luke is, is unique in the sense it's the only Gospel that follows chronology. The other three Gospels do not. Right after this incident, then it, it skips on over to Matthew 12, but we'll hit that when we get to it. But Jesus fulfilled even the Messianic miracles that the Jews themselves taught only Messiah would be able to do. The first one started the inquiry, started questioning. The second one, there was an inquiry. The third one here, they, they say, well, he's not really the Messiah. They try to explain it away. Now, what's the point for us? Is that we can see God move and we want to explain it away all the time. 
you see God's gracious hand in your life, you want to explain it away. And this is what we do. We so often don't want to give God the credit for what He does in our lives. Verse 35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Look at what God does. Jesus goes out, he starts healing the people, and he looks at them and he says, These are like sheep without a shepherd. You and I have to pray. We have to pray, God, change my heart toward unbelievers. God, give me love for them. Let me see them as you see them. And ask God to change your heart, to drive this point home to your heart, that you would reach out and begin to touch the hearts of others. As you labor in the church, it is very easy to grow weary and to feel like, you know, I'm doing so much here and nobody else is doing anything. And you know what you need at that time? You need a dose from the Lord of His love for the body of Christ. That you would see others in the body of Christ as He sees them. And say, Lord, give me love for these people. Lord, thank You for this opportunity to minister to them. Thank You, Lord, for this opportunity. And let me see them as You see them. And you know how He often sees them? As sheep without a shepherd that are distressed and dispirited. Or, as, as other, other uh, um, translations say, harassed and helpless. So many people are distressed and dispirited, harassed and helpless. Absolutely helpless. You know, it, it, it's, we can be quick to judge others because of their sin. Remember, if you're not in Christ, there is no power over sin. There is none if you're not in Christ. Without Christ, there's no power over sin. God gives us power over sin in Jesus. In, when we're in Jesus, we have power over sin. And then, then he, he talks about how he says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So pray that God would send out laborers into the harvest. Pray that laborers would come forth. Pray that some would come forth. And remember, that is primarily on us. Father, let me speak Your Word. Let me go out in Your name. And then look what Jesus does. Jesus summoned His twelve disciples and He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first Simon, who is also called Peter. Then Andrew, his brother. And James, the son of Zebedee. And John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Now, some people say he chose twelve because one from each tribe. Not at all. There were three sets of brothers here, at least. So, how could they be from different tribes? They're not. And, in fact, several of these are Jesus' cousins, so it's not one from each tribe. And Jesus instructed them, do not go the way of the Gentiles, do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper coins for your money belts, or a bag for your journey, or even two coats or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. So look how Jesus sends them out. And because of this, some will, some will then say, well, you, you see, when you go out, never take any money with you and just trust the Lord. Look, if, you, if God moves you to do that, do that. But He didn't always send them out that way. You know, there were differences when He sent them out later. Look in, in Luke chapter 22. In Luke chapter 22, He sends them out differently. He equips them differently. In Luke chapter 22, reading from verse uh, 35. And he said to them, When I sent you out without money, without money belt and bag and sandals, did not, did, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, No, nothing. And he said to them, But now, whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you, that that which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, look here, are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. This is a very interesting passage. Jesus sends them out differently. And in fact, he says, if you've got some money, carry it along with you. He says, if you've got a sword, bring it along. You're going to need a sword for your travels. And they said, hey, we've only got two swords here. He says, that'll do. Now, these swords weren't real long swords. They were short daggers that people kept when they traveled just for personal protection. In the same chapter, when Peter uses that sword, when Jesus is confronted and he uses that sword, Jesus tells him to put it away because that was the wrong context for its use. So see down in the same chapter, um, verse 40. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 49. Matthew, uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 49. When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop! No more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. So Peter, we learn from another gospel that it was Peter who did this. Before Jesus could say, no, this is not the time for that sword. That sword has a different purpose. Peter took out the sword and cut off the slave of the high priest's ear. So, so there were several groups here. There were Roman soldiers. There were temple guards. And there were also some slaves of the high priest had been sent. And how convenient of Peter to choose a slave. I mean, he wasn't about to you know, slash at a Roman soldier. So he, he, he misses and he hits the guy's ear. And she said, hey, stop it. And he picks up the ear, he dusts it off, and he puts it back on the guy's head. That guy must have been really impacted through all of this. Really must have been. Imagine what he must have been wondering through this whole, whole situation. That dagger, in fact, uh, you know, many people try to explain this away. Jesus had them pick up those swords and he told them when you travel. And I think the best explanation for this is that when you and I are witnessing the gospel, 
We are not to use the sword. We are not to defend ourselves. But there is no problem with, with having defense for your family and for your home. You know, and I know some believers say, you know, if somebody comes into my home, you know, it's open, it's free. If they break in, well, what happens when they start raping your daughters? You're going to say, hey, my daughters are free. You know, we're Christians. Go ahead, rape away. I mean, at some point, you're going to defend your family? You know, are you? I mean, I mean, how far do you want to carry this? I just want to know. Oh, ha- take my wife too, my wife and my daughters. You happy now? I'm a good Christian, see? I give everything I have, Right? No, you defend your home, you defend your family. There is nothing wrong with that. And, and this dagger was the dagger that was used for personal defense. But when you're out preaching the gospel, it is a different situation. And that is, what, that is the lesson that Jesus is teaching them. And I've read all sorts of different views on what this means. And I think the greatest view is just this one. That when we're preaching the gospel, we're not using daggers. But what happens is that we have every right to defend ourselves and our family. Jesus told them specifically, if you don't own a dagger, sell your coat and buy one. All right, so, you know, you must be saying, oh, this guy must be, you know, a member of the NRA or something. (laughs) Just reading the scriptures. Let Let me take home the next point here, and that is that of going. You know, I, I was reading, I was reading in, uh, in this book by Charles Spurgeon. He wrote this, the, this book, it's called Lectures to My Students. And he wrote this in around 1875. Okay, so this was a long time ago. So this is 130 years ago. This is what he wrote. He's talking about sending his students out into the mission field. So he had a Bible college. And he would teach young men to be preachers of the gospel. So this was his school. He was teaching them how to be, be preachers. And, and Charles Spurgeon was the greatest preacher that ever lived. He, they say he was a master pulpiteer. Just excellent. And you read, his, he had 1,900 sermons have been, ha, have been written up. And you can get all 1,900 sermons. I mean, they're all, in, in fact, I have, I have all of them on my computer. Every one of them has been recorded, 1,900 sermons. The guy was excellent, and he's written like seven books. But look what he's telling his students 130 years ago. And, and, and I want you to begin to think about this, because Jesus sends us forth. Lastly, and here I'm going to deliver a message which weighs upon me, go forward in the matter of the choice of your sphere of action. I plead this day for those who cannot plead for themselves, namely, the great outlying masses of the heathen world. Our existing pulpits are tolerably well supplied, but we need men who will build on new foundations. Who will do this? Are we, as a company of faithful men, clear in our conscience about the heathen? Millions have never heard the name of Jesus. Hundreds of millions have have never heard... Hundreds of millions have seen a missionary only once in their lives and know nothing of our king. Shall we let them perish? Can we go to our beds and sleep while China, India, Japan and other nations are damned? Are we clear of their blood? Have they no claim upon us? We ought to put it on this footing, not can I prove that I ought to go, but can I prove that I ought not to go? When a man can prove honestly that he ought not to go, then he is clear. 
but not else. What answer do you give, my brethren? I put it to you, man by man. I am not raising a question among you which I have not honestly put to myself. I have felt that if some of our leading ministers would go forth, it would have a grand effect in stimulating the churches. And I have honestly asked myself whether I ought to go. After balancing the whole thing, I feel bound to keep my place. And I think judgment of most Christians would be the same. But I hope I would cheerfully go if it were my duty to do so. Brethren, put yourself through the same process. We must have the heathen converted. God has myriads of His elect among them. We must go and search for them till we find them. Many difficulties are now removed. All lands are open to us and distance is annihilated. This was written 130 years ago. True, we have not the Pentecostal gift of tongues, but languages are now readily acquired. While the art of printing is a full equivalent for the lost gift, the dangers incident to missions ought not to keep any true man back, even if they were very great, but they are now reduced to a minimum. There are hundreds of places where the cross of Christ is unknown, to which we can go without risk. Who will go? The men who ought to go are young brethren of good abilities, who have not yet taken upon themselves family cares. Now I'm going to jump down a bit. And he says, he says When we read of heroic men who gave up all for Jesus, we are not merely to admire, but to imitate them. Who will imitate them now? Come to the point. Are there not some among you willing to consecrate yourselves to the Lord? Forward is the watchword today. Are there no bold spirits to lead the van? Pray, all of you, that during the Pentecost, the Spirit may say, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work. Forward, in God's name. Forward. This mission call remains upon us. Jesus said, Pray ye therefore. The Lord of Harvest. Beseech the Lord of Harvest to send out workers into the harvest. And then the end of Matthew's Gospel. In the end of Matthew's Gospel comes the Great Commission in chapter 28, verse 18. Jesus came up and spoke to them. Matthew 28, 18, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. There are several among you that need to spend your life on the mission field. And the short-term mission opportunities that you have now will begin to seal it for you. And the world will argue against you. The world will try to say, no, that's not for you. Look back in Matthew chapter 9 where we were. In Matthew chapter 9, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 10. He says, verse 21, Matthew 10, 21, Brother will betray brother to death and father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end that will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Look down in verse 32 of Matthew chapter 10. 
Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. You and I cannot keep silent. You know, sometimes students feel bad for me. They come and they tell me, you know, all these group of students are talking about you because, you know, you're always talking about Jesus. I say, don't feel bad for me. Don't feel bad for me. I'm happy about that. Give them something to talk about. I'm happy about that. And that's the way we should be. Look in Luke chapter 6. Keep your finger there, but look in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 26. Luke chapter 6, verse 26. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat... For the fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Many people say, well, I don't speak up, you know, I don't want to bother anybody. Look, their stinking house is on fire. It is on fire. They are going to hell. If you do not believe that, then begin to read your Bible. Without Christ, they will perish. Whoever does not have Jesus in their life will perish. I didn't write those words. The Scriptures say it. One young lady, I said to her, why wouldn't I share with you if your house is on fire? She said, well, I'd be offended if you came and knocked on my door and told me my house was on fire. I'm thinking, you're crazy. You are crazy. I'm driving down the road. I see your house is on fire. I see smoke billowing from the back. Don't you think it's a nice thing that I stop and I knock on the door and I say, uh, Ma'am, I think your house might be on fire? She says, No, I'd be offended by that. You know, their house is on fire. And if they take offense, so be it. But it behooves us to tell them that their house is on fire. This is what the Scriptures tell us. And you say, Well, you, you know, I don't want them to say these bad things about me. That's fine. That's exactly how they used to treat the false prophets. And you and I are false prophets if we do not speak. Why? Because we know the truth and we keep our mouths shut. That is a lie. Because we keep our mouths shut when we know the truth. And we are false prophets. And you want everybody to speak well of you. Oh, how wonderful. But just remember, they did it of the false prophets as well. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9, If you don't confess me before men, I will not confess you before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus said in verse 32 of Matthew chapter 10, Therefore everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And by our silence we deny him. By our silence we deny him. When we know the truth, and we do not speak it, by our silence we deny him, and we are false prophets. Does this make you feel uncomfortable? Good. Squirm. Feel uncomfortable. We need to feel uncomfortable about disobedience to God's Word. This is what it calls us to do. Confess me before men because they are perishing. And my heart goes out to the unbeliever because I know what your end will be. And I know what your life will be like. I know what your marriage will be like. I know that the pain that you'll go through without the Lord. And shame on me if I do not speak the gospel. And you know what you should do? You should do something. And when people start talking, do something else. And then do another thing. And so that they lose track of what to talk about. 
No, really, that's what you do. You know, so you get them talking about this one thing, and if you just sit there in your office and suck your thumb and say, oh, everybody's talking about me, I feel terrible, I feel terrible, I must have upset them. You can change the whole thing, you just go out and do something else to, to display Jesus. And then do another thing, and eventually they give up. They say, we're not going to change this guy. We're not going to change him. And I just come at them again and again, and they just back off. People say, don't people give you a hard time? And you know, Not anymore. Not anymore, because they know I'm just coming with another one. You know, we just hit them with another one. And so they just say, just, just don't get them excited. They're just, just... And that's what you want to do. But it's true, you must get the gospel across. And I have seen, over years of dealing with people, you just drop truth in there, drop truth in there. And eventually they open up. Sometimes it's at, 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 you know, when their marriage is, 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 is going bad, or one of their children is deeply sick. You know what happens? They're coming for help. Jesus calls us. Will we not go? When I was graduating from college, I filled out forms to go on to the mission field. And, and lots of mission organizations said, you know, you know sure, we'll, we'll do this sort of thing. And then I talked about you know, the possibility of graduate school. And many of them said, you know, if you're getting into graduate school and your heart is, is there and you're so active on campus, why don't you stay in graduate school and see what the Lord has? And I stayed in graduate school and I had Bible studies all through graduate school and I began to touch students all through graduate school, always had Bible studies in every institution where, where, where I was educated. I always had, had Bible studies going. And I began to touch lives and touch people that I never could have touched as, missionary, as a missionary. I was touching lives. That, that was when China first opened and all these Chinese visiting scholars were coming in. It was the late 70s. They just began to come in. And these were the cream of the crop coming in from China. And I was touching their lives. I was having Bible studies. And to this day, I know some of them who have stayed here, become professors. And to this day, I'm collaborating with them. You, you can touch many lives. And so, you know, and, and then it was obvious that I was touching lives in academia. And so I had looked at my life. Am I to be on the mission field? This, and I told Shireen before we got married, I said, what if the Lord should cause us to China? And she said, if He calls us to China, we go. But you have to at least examine yourself and see what the Lord would have for you. And if it's here to stay, then make this your ministry field. You are without excuse. Look in verse 34 of Matthew chapter 10. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. This whole chapter is his teaching his twelve disciples before they go out. This is his teaching to them. This is his teaching to us. Will we speak His Word, or am I going to be a great intellectual and not talk much about Jesus? Because if I talk about Jesus, I won't be much of, a, of an intellectual. And I might have an 18-year-old write an article about me in the fresh, talking about how I couldn't be a great scientist. You know, some 18-year-old that's never taken a science course in his life is, is scrutinizing faculty 
who have their PhDs and have published grand amounts saying, oh, you know, they hurt the university with this. What? I mean, it, it, it's, it's utterly, utterly ridiculous. And you sit there and you go, huh? He is the judge of these people? And are we going to speak up? Is this supposed to all of a sudden make me stand back and say, oh yes, he's right. He's right. You know, I'm really ruining the reputation of the university. My science has really compromised the university. Or are we going to speak up about this thing? If you do not confess him, Jesus will not confess you. Jesus, it says in the word too, it says, He was ashamed of me and my word in this sinful and perverse generation. I will be ashamed of him when I come in the glory of, of my father and his angels. That means when Jesus comes, you're going to walk up and say, Hey, Jesus, he's going to say, Uh-oh, Father, you don't, you don't want to meet them. You don't want to meet them. Let's go on to the next person. That's what it says. He says, I will be ashamed of Him before my Father when I come in the glory of my Father with His angels I will be ashamed of Him if He has been ashamed of me does this make you feel uncomfortable? good do something about it this is what the Word of God is supposed to do it's supposed to make us feel uncomfortable in disobedience and we are to speak up we are to go we are to do things that witness for Christ again, 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 again and there is great blessing and He says you know, well, my mom and dad don't want me to talk about Jesus. If you love your mother and father more than me, you're not worthy of me. And I am very supportive of mothers and fathers. I am really supportive. But you must witness Jesus. I think if your mother and father doesn't want you to go on the mission field and you're in college supported by them, you don't go on the mission field. You honor them. But there comes a time when you're then out of the college, you're out of their home, and you have to now make a choice. And that my warning to mothers and fathers all the time, it says, if he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It's that the biggest holdback for Christians going on to the mission field is not Satan. It's Christian mothers and fathers who don't want their kids going on the mission field because they want them to be doctors and lawyers living right next door, having their kids right next door so they can play grandma and grandpa to these kids and not knowing that they're killing the lives of their children by doing this. Let them go on the mission field. If this is where God has called them, let them go. Let them go. Everybody says, how could you send your daughter to Israel? Isn't it dangerous over there? Yeah, well, life is dangerous. But if God has called her to go, she goes. I mean, it would be stupid of her to stay. It'd be dangerous of her to stay here if God has called her to go. God has called her to go. Might she die there? She might. She might die in Houston. Anybody can die. And die anywhere. She might. But it's not the end. You let them go. And when you have these children that are dear to you, you remember this verse. That you must let them go. We must speak His word. We must be witnesses. He says, you pray. Beseech the Lord of harvest to send out workers into His harvest. And remember, don't just try to send others into situations without looking at yourself. Lord, am I doing it? Use these mission opportunities you have on these short-term missions this summer. Ask God, is this for my life? Am I to do this for the rest of my life? Maybe He has called you to this. Maybe He has. But let your mouth be open and there is great blessing in it. Because remember what Jesus says in John chapter 12. He who serves me, the Father will honor him. 
there is great reward in service. And let's read the last three verses of Matthew chapter 10. He who receives, he who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. There is great blessing that God has upon those who will serve him. You say, well, I know somebody went to the mission field and they got killed. Well, what do you expect? They did it to Jesus. No surprise, that happens. That happens. But they're living gloriously in heaven. They're living gloriously in heaven. It is a great way to go. What do you want to be sitting in an old age home, drooling and you know, having it run down your face, oh, 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 and sitting in a wheelchair and die like that? Is that what you want? I'd much rather go out in a burst of glory on the mission field. I really would. It's a much better way to go. You've got all your senses and, Lord, take me. You know? Like Stephen. Lord, receive me. It's a much better way to go than just, you know, sitting there with a bag strapped to your leg. This is a, it's, it's much better to, to go out with the Lord. Not that, you know, we don't go other ways, but don't worry about your life. You've got to witness and you've got to share. God bless you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. So much for your word that calls us to something much greater. Lord Jesus, I thank you because you call us to speak your word. And if we don't, we are false prophets. We are false prophets. And we would be treated well by the world. And your word to us is woe to us. Father, have mercy on these young people, I pray. Have mercy on them that they would learn to step beyond the comfortable and do what you've called them to do. God, have mercy on them, I pray, and draw them close to yourself. Let them be drawn close to yourself, O Lord. Father, I pray for your grace to abound and your mercies in their lives. In the name of Jesus, amen.